All right, well, please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to start today. The last two weeks, we've been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, that was supposed to be a part one, part two sermon, and now it's become a part one, part two, part three sermon. And I've been told that it will not become a four-part sermon. <laughs> In Second uh, Corinthians 3, we've been learning about the distinction not only between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but the ministry of the law and the ministry of the Spirit. That is Paul's focus in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we've learned that the ministry of the law, the ministry of condemnation in tablets of stone, written in stone, is fading away. And the ministry of the Spirit now in the New Covenant is permanent. And last week we considered the different glories that exist between these two ministries and, yeah, even between the two covenants, that the new covenant is greater in every way than the old covenant, and it is perpetual. This third part, I want to get to the part where we talk about what does new covenant living now look like? But uh, before we get there, I have to finish last week's sermon, okay? So uh, last week, uh, we ended on this thought that law is no longer law to us, that the law no longer has punishment. It no longer can kill us in Christ. In fact, we have died to the law so that we could be joined to Christ and live to God. And so I gave you that illustration at the end of last week's sermon about my boss, uh, who was the CEO of the company I worked for, who became the president of the board. And though he was still around, and though he was still a wealth of information and knowledge and wisdom as it pertained to the company, he had a different function in the company, and especially for me, as someone who worked directly for him, there was a different function where he could no longer fire me, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, you know, I got away with a lot of stuff after that. No, uh, but he could no longer uh, be the one to fire me. I had a new uh, obligation, uh, a new person that I was under. But uh, in that same sense, the law has been reappropriated for God's people. Law is no longer law to us or for us, but law is, I think, better understood as wisdom, literature, God's Word that is profitable for all teaching, reproof, rebuke, correction, uh, for training in righteousness. The law is still the Word of God, but it is no longer law to us. Because that phrase that we'll see a couple of times today not under the law, that has to mean something, doesn't it? You are no longer under law, but you are under grace. And I think that means that law is not law to us anymore. It's wisdom, literature from God. It's the revelation from God written on our hearts through Christ as we seek to love God, love our neighbor, love one another as He is loved. But this usage of the law as wisdom literature is not without precedent. It's not a, a novel idea. The reason I wanted you to turn to 1 Corinthians 9 with me is because we'll start with a, an example from Paul himself and how he does this. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 10, to see how Paul reappropriates the law as wisdom literature in Christian living. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 8. Paul is talking to the church here about uh, supporting those who are leading the church, financially supporting those who are leading the church. And he says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? Now, if we stop right there, the, the law never talks about supporting pastors in the church, does it? It just doesn't. It doesn't, doesn't talk about those things. And so you think, well, maybe he'll go to a passage that talks about supporting priests through tithes. That seems like a very obvious connection, right? Well, no, 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 that's not what Paul does. Look at what he does in verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. He's just calling pastors a bunch of oxen here, isn't he? God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Verse 10, 
or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Well, when the law was given, this particular law was given, this was binding for Israel, that they were not to muzzle their oxen while they were out uh, doing the oxen business there in the field. They were not to keep their oxen from eating as they went along some of the produce. But instead, they were to let the oxen freely graze, and they were to do so in hope. That's Paul's point in verse 10, that the big idea, the heart of this law wasn't just that God wanted the oxen to get fat. That wasn't the point of the law. But the point of the law was that they were to plow in hope. The plowman ought to plow in hope, trusting God for the harvest, not being stingy with his produce. In fact, there were a few laws about not being stingy with produce. It wasn't just for oxen. And so Paul here is taking that law and applying it to Christian living in a whole new sense and saying, as the oxen were to freely graze as they went along doing their business, so you too also ought to share with those who labor among you in teaching and preaching, as he said to uh, Timothy. And so that's the, the reappropriation I'm talking about, where the law is still referred to as the Word of God, and yet it's applied in a different sense. You can see this also in 2 Corinthians. Turn with me to the end of 2 Corinthians. We will get to the end of 2 Corinthians in our study eventually, but 2 Corinthians 13, the last chapter, verse 1, Paul does the same thing with the law. And he does so at a, at a time here where you think he doesn't even need to do this, but he's doing it as he's gleaning wisdom from the law and applying the principles in a new way. 2 Corinthians 13.1, Paul writes to this church saying, this is the third time I am coming to you. And then he quotes the law saying, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, you can find that law in multiple places in the law of Moses, that every fact is to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And yet each time that law is used, it's in reference to crimes or the death penalty even, that you aren't to put someone to death because of a crime unless there are two or three witnesses. Paul here isn't using it in that sense at all, is he? He's not talking about the death penalty, he's not talking about a crime, but he's gleaning wisdom from the law, reappropriating it as wisdom in the Christian life and using it in a new sense. So the big idea in all of this is that Christ on our behalf, took the curse of the law. Not that we would forget the law, not that we would ignore those pages of our Bible, but that law would no longer be law to us because the punishment is gone and there is a new function for the law, that it would be a source of wisdom in Christian living to be used in a new way. And this directly impacts how we talk about the law and how we apply it to our lives. I want to quote to you a differing view of the law. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and I'm going through all this because I think it's important that you understand these distinctions and consider how you talk about the law in your life. The Westminster Confession of Faith in section 19.5 says, the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Now, I disagree with this approach. This is one way to you know, skin that cat, if you don't mind that analogy. Sorry, Joe. I know you have a couple of beloved cats. Should I say dog? Okay, all right, cats, yeah. <clears throat> well, this is one way to do it, but I don't agree with this approach. Uh, you'll notice in that quote, what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, is that there's a section of the law called the moral law. And that particular section of the law carries over into the church today, and we now have even a stronger obligation to it than Israel ever did. Well, of course, there is much overlap between certain aspects of the Mosaic law, the law given through Moses in the Old Testament, and the commands for the church, but they are not the same thing. The commands given to the church is not the law of Moses and vice versa. Now, there are certainly 
different types of laws that are found in the Old Testament. When you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll go to the Ten Commandments, for instance, and you'll read through, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't covet, and that certainly makes sense to you today, doesn't it? That this reflects the eternal morality of God, what is right and what is wrong. But then there are certain laws you come across that are just different. All that mixed fabric business. Do you check the tags on your clothes? Is that a moral issue or not? Well, I think some of these questions are really hard to answer. There are laws in the Old Testament that pertain to sacrifices. There are laws in the Old Testament that pertain to order in Israel's society. There are laws in the Old Testament that pertain to what is eternally right and wrong. But some laws aren't quite clear as to what category they would fit into if we were going to make those categories. Tithing, for example, is that not a moral issue? The Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments. Observing Saturday as a day of rest, is that not a moral issue? What about the landmark laws that are in the Old Testament about respecting your neighbor's boundaries? Or the parapet you're to put on your roof, make sure there's a fence on the balcony so no one falls off. That's a moral issue, isn't it? That's not just a civil or ceremonial type of issue. Leaving produce for others, the corner of your field. It says in the law that we are to rise up before the aged. The young are to rise up and to show reverence. Who would we do that for here? Hmm. But is that a moral issue or not? Strict law categories for the law of Moses are man's invention. They're not God's invention. And it's hard for us to maintain such categories. I think it's best to say that the whole law of Moses is moral at heart, isn't it? Not just some laws are moral, but all the laws are moral. And instead of imposing some sort of man-made itemization to the whole law, which, by the way, I've yet to find anybody who takes that view that there are certain categories of law. I've yet to find anybody who goes through all 613 commands and mark which ones are which. Because that would be really important if you're saying we are bound to one category. Well, I better know what all the laws are of that category. But there's no way to do that. So instead of having to go through and make such an itemized list, we live in freedom in the new covenant to follow the Spirit into Christ-likeness based on the foundational work of the apostles and prophets in the church. The Spirit brings about His fruit. The Spirit leads us into the heart of God. And we are actually fulfilling the law of God. This is what the New Testament says. We fulfill the law as we are conformed to the image of Christ, as we imitate His love. The law, of course, is still profitable. The law of Moses is glorious. It's profitable. But it has a different function for us. It is not law to us. And I want to show you an example of this as we're dwelling on this topic. Oh, I got, and I got plenty of time. I want to show you an example of this um, from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So turn with me back to Acts chapter 15 as we consider this applied to the church, the, these concepts applied to the church. I think this is perhaps the best example that we have in the New Testament of how law ceases to be law for Christians. At the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, you have a great conference, meeting of the minds, apostles and elders from local churches coming together to discuss what to do with Gentiles. Because all of a sudden, you have among God's people not only the law-abiding Jews who were still going to the temple, who were still participating in many of the laws, the dietary restrictions and other things, but now you have these lawless pagans who all of a sudden are confessing Jesus Christ. And there's this great question, what on earth do we do with these people? These barbarians, these uncircumcised, just Gentiles, what do you say? They're pigs, they're dogs. What do you do with them? Well, they come together, these leaders, the apostles and elders, and they make some decisions here. But I want you to see what they have to say about dealing with this issue. Let's look at verses 4 and 5, Acts 15, starting in verse 4. It says that when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And so you have here Paul and Barnabas coming to meet the others and saying, God saving Gentiles. 
In verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So that was the Pharisees who apparently had been converted, they'd become Christians, but they were from the sect of the Pharisees, and they said, well, we can't let them be Gentiles anymore. If they're going to be Christians, they have to be Christians like us, who are of Israel. They have to observe the law of Moses if we're going to have peace here. Otherwise, we're going to kill each other. And the solution is, they obey the law. Well, that is, again, another way to skin another cat. But that's not what they decided to do. Drop down to verse 10 with me. You have Peter here speaking. And look at what Peter says. Verse 10, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Peter here calls the law of Moses a yoke. He says, why would we put a yoke on them and tell them to observe the law of Moses? They were saved by grace. We were saved by grace. We are to continue in the grace of God. That's his point. And James agrees. If we drop down to verse 19, James kind of sums everything up and he says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We do not trouble them. That's what James is saying. Don't trouble them. How would we trouble them? By telling them to conform to the law. That's a yoke that would trouble them in their Christian life. They were not put under the law at all, but instead they were called to love. If you remember how this story goes, the Jerusalem council didn't agree to tell the Gentiles to just, okay, well, we'll tell them to keep the Ten Commandments. That's not what they said. Now, that would have been pretty easy, wouldn't it? They could have said, we've got the Ten, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Let's just tell the Gentiles, keep with those ten, everything's good. Not what they did. Instead, they gave them three, you could call them ceremonial laws to follow, refrain from things strangled, from blood. They gave them three of those types of laws, and they gave them one moral law to observe, if you want to categorize it that way, that they would re refrain from sexual immorality. And this isn't because it had become okay for the Gentiles to steal or lie or commit adultery, those things we find in the Ten Commandments, those things are still sin. But it's because in the church, obligation is not to commands in stone, but obligation is to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The law that was given to Jacob only, that's what we looked at last week, Psalm 147, the law that was given to Israel only that was the enmity between Jew and Gentile, and that enmity has been abolished in Christ, Ephesians 2 says. So the solution here wasn't to erect what Christ had taken down and say, let's go back to the law. That wasn't the solution. The council instead asked the Gentiles to be the stronger brothers in a sense and to observe certain laws that they did not have to observe. They could eat things with blood. You can eat things with blood if you want. Blood sausage, blood pudding, you guys like that kind of thing? Whether you like it or not, you're free to have it. Well, the Gentiles were asked to abstain from that as the stronger brothers serving these Jewish believers who were like the weaker brothers, still observing commands that they did not have to observe anymore, and they understandably still felt obligated to them. And this was a risk. It was a risk for the apostles to ask them to do that because the law is a yoke. It's troubling for those who are seeking to grow by grace. But this is what the love of Christ does. It doesn't look to a code. It doesn't look to a list of commands. Instead, being led by the Spirit, believers fulfill the law by bearing fruit to God that reflects their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's their greatest obligation. That's our greatest obligation. The stronger washes the feet of the weaker. That's what the love of Christ is. So Christian living is more than law-keeping. It's fruit-bearing. It's bearing fruit in accordance with the Word of God. It's about living transformed lives that display the love of Jesus. It's about looking to Christ as we, as we follow the instruction given by the apostles and prophets. 
And some might respond saying, is it really that simple? Could it even be that simple? And yes, yes it is. Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, you can. It'll be up on the screen. But listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. In Galatians 5, starting at verse 16, of course, he's saying over and over again to the believers in Galatia that they are not to put themselves back under law. And he says in Galatians 5, starting at 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now that's almost like an abrupt phrase. Like, how did he get there? Well, that's because Paul is always linking the law with works of the flesh. And he says we are not under the law, but we are following the ministry of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has now come in the new covenant to regenerate us, to guide us, to lead us. And if we're walking by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you're following the Spirit, you are under grace. You are not under the law. This is God's plan for Christian living. You see, it's pretty amazing. We're, we are law fulfillers without being law keepers. And that's just hard for us to wrap our minds around. You are a law fulfiller without being a law keeper. Drop down to verse 25, Galatians 5.25 with me. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We are fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, by loving one another with the love of Christ, by being the stronger who washes the feet of the weaker. This is God's plan. We have a better law, the law of Christ, and we fulfill it by being led by the Spirit. So where is the power of a holy life? Where is the power of sanctification? Where is the power of being set apart for God in this new covenant? Not in law-keeping, but in the Spirit's leading as He brings about fruit through us. So now let's go back to 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll finish that passage today. 2 Corinthians 3. It has caused us to go in a variety of places as we consider this new covenant and the life in the new covenant. And I want to detail now new covenant living from this passage, 2 Corinthians 3, and let's read verses 4 through 6 again. It says, "...such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God." who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So considering now new covenant living, your life, what should that look like? How should it be defined if you're not under the law, but you're under grace? I think we do well to first notice in verse 6 that God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Out of all the words that could have been used, the word servant is used. That defines your life as a Christian, your servant. You were saved to wash feet, and you've been fully equipped by the life-giving Holy Spirit, not by the letter which kills, but by the Spirit who gives life. And as we think about servanthood, that really was the role of Jesus in His ministry, wasn't it? Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. His whole life on earth was marked by servanthood. And, I mean, it's just so remarkable. Jesus washed Judas's feet. He dwelt on that. I mean, knowing what was going on with Judas here, He was washing Judas's feet. The God of the universe, who has all prerogative, all privilege, He is due all honor and glory, 
was washing his enemies' feet. So as we think about our role as servants, what's off the table for us? What's too low for us? I would say nothing when it comes to servanthood. If Jesus demonstrated his love by washing his enemies' feet, how much more we are obligated to do the same. The word here for servant in verse 6 is the word diakonos. It's the word for deacon. That's where we get our word deacon. And it means servant, bond servant, table server. It's from Jesus' teaching when He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. That's Jesus' measure of greatness. How do you know if someone's great? Well, how much does He serve? We get another word in the New Testament. It's the word doulos, and that word means slave. So your life as a Christian is marked by servanthood as a slave for God. As C.K. Barrett describes it in his commentary, he says, the covenant is the relation initiated and determined by God between Himself and His people. Hence, it is naturally connected with service. We are servants of a new covenant. The two ideas are linked. God has made a covenant with His people, a new covenant, and service is a major part of that. That's our definition. We are servants. And that looks like not only the humility of washing feet, but our new covenant service is preaching Christ and loving people by the power of the Holy Spirit. We could really simplify this and say new covenant service is from humility, preaching Christ and loving people by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is something we can only do if we are empowered by God Himself. And this happens, of course, in the world. We are not out in the world imposing some sort of earthly kingdom, but we are out in the world hopefully reflecting the love of Christ as loving neighbors with a sanctified love, not love as the world loves, which is inconsistent and hypocritical and at its core self-serving, but loving the world with a sanctified, holy, sacrificial love. Living as lights in the world. Remember Jesus said that we're lights in a dark place, functioning as heralds of the gospel. We go forth with love and with light, the love and light of Christ, to a lost and dying world with the good news of what Jesus has done. And while we do that, we use the law lawfully. We looked last week at 1 Timothy 1, and it says, look, the law was made for the ungodly. And so we go out and we engage the sinner in gospel conversations, and we use the law to confront the sinner. And as they're confronted with their own sin through the law, we give them the good news of Jesus that the law isn't going to save them. They can't dig themselves out of this hole, but they're nailed to the wall by the law. And Jesus was nailed to the cross that their debt would be set aside and canceled out because of his sacrifice. I love what Robert Gramacki said about this in his commentary. He's good at really short sentences that are potent. He said, men are repulsed by the glory of the law, but they are attracted by the glory of the new covenant. And that's our privilege to go out and to say, Here's the Old Covenant law. How are you doing with that? We'll just look at two of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing with it? Oh, it cuts. They're repulsed. They just can't. They're failures, just like you and me. But they're attracted to the glory of the New Covenant, which is, let me tell you about the love of Jesus. Let me tell you what He has done in our place for our behalf. And in that sense, we uphold the law. Our sanctified love for the world should be a sacrificial love that takes the gospel to all the corners of the earth. And the glory of the Spirit's ministry is seen when we do this. The glory of the new covenant ministry of the Spirit is seen as we go out into the world in loving word and deed, that the world would encounter the love of God through us. And so our servanthood in the new covenant happens out in the world, but it also happens in the church, doesn't it? We are servants of the new covenant in the church. Believers building one another up as Jesus has inaugurated His kingdom. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain, the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Colossians 1 says. And in the church, we should also see servanthood in a new covenant. Believers building one another up through spiritual care of one another. And we learn how to do this by going to our foundation, the foundation of the church according to Ephesians 2.20, is the apostles and prophets 
Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so we appeal to, in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, and we go learn about Jesus, and we hear Him explained through the letters written by the apostles, and we learn about Christian living in the New Testament. The New Testament, by the way, uh, testament just means covenant. Perhaps you didn't know that. You could call it the Old Covenant and New Covenant in your Bible. And so you want to learn about New Covenant living? We'll turn to the New Covenant in your Bible. And the foundation of the apostles and prophets will explain this as we want to discover our calling and the commands for the church. In this endeavor, we see the primacy of personal holiness too. This is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 where this apostle wrote to the church saying in 1 Peter 1, 15, that like the Holy One who called us, we are to be holy ourselves in all our behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The church is not going to go anywhere. The church is not going to be built up. We are not going to be effective as servants of a new covenant if there is not holiness in the church. There must be holiness among God's people if there's going to be edification, if there's going to be true spiritual care. God's people have to be set apart as servants. The new covenant glory is displayed in personal transformation as we are conformed to the Holy One by the Holy Spirit. And we grow by grace, freely laying hold of the holiness of the Lord. I love how Alva McLean phrased this in his little book, uh, Law, and, Law and Grace or Law and Gospel? It's a little book by Alva McLean, and it has law in the title. I remember that much. But he says this in that book, it's not the law, but Christ dying under the law for us and in our stead, who sets the standard of the good life in the gospel of grace. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be like God and holy in all your behavior, as 1 Peter 1 says? Well, we look to Jesus Christ and we see the standard of good in what He has done for us in our behalf. And to do this, we must be led by the Spirit. That's Paul's point. Look down at verse 6 again with me. We must be of the Spirit, people who are of Him. We are not of the letter. We are of the Spirit. And that's the only way that we will be servants of a new covenant in the world and in the church. Well, I want to attempt here to tie up the remaining loose ends that I have and give you some practicality to walk away with as we think about what it means to be people of the Spirit, servants of a new covenant. What, is that, what does that look like? Let's continue to press into that. Well, as I just read in verse 6, you'll notice that Paul says that we are not of the letter. We are not of the letter. And when he says letter here, he's referring, of course, to the law. It's in reference to the law itself commands that are written in stone. Uh, so often our mind goes to the Ten Commandments, and that's uh, not wrong. They, are, of course, were given in stone. You see that in verse 7, letters engraved on stones. But I want to remind you, too, that at the end of the book of Joshua, the whole law was etched into stone. Maybe you forgot that part of that story where God said, hey, when you get over there and you get established in that land, I want the law written on stone. And they found a big stone, and we don't know if they just redid the Ten Commandments or if they did more than that. It seems to me that they did more than that. But there it was, chiseled in stone, the law of God. Now, if it was the whole law of God, I assume they had multiple chiselers who <laughs> they would take shifts because that is a lot to etch into stone. But at least on a couple of occasions here, we have the letter or the law itself being portrayed as commands in stone. But we are not of that letter. That means we don't have to think, as we go through in our Christian living, we don't think, well, what does the law demand of us? But it's actually much better for us as the new covenant people of God, the new work of God, the church, to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ, to dwell upon the cross of Christ, where sorrow and love flow mingled down, as we sing, and to think about the greater standard that's been set before us, Jesus Christ Himself. Perhaps 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it was really popular to have those bracelets that said WWJD, remember those? Well, there's stuff that can be said about all that, and 
whether it's helpful or not helpful. But at the heart of that, I think, is something very helpful. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, aren't we? The Holy Spirit is not conforming Christians to letters engraved in stone. The Holy Spirit is in the business, in your life, He's in the business of conforming you to a person, Jesus, and we need to dwell on Him. Before, in the Old Covenant, man was to conform to the commands in stone. In that Old Covenant, they were to look at the commands that were etched in rock and try to make themselves like God's standard that He gave them. But now, there's something different going on. As a Christian, you have an internal power that you wouldn't have had in the Old Covenant. There's a New Covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it could even be said that Christ is in you, conforming you to the love of God. In Galatians 4.19, as Paul was writing to that church, I just want to mention this little phrase because I think it's fascinating. Paul said to them, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. There's this idea that we have in the New Testament of Christ being formed in us. It's not just an external standard where we are to jump higher and higher, jump through more hoops, and try to make ourselves righteous. That is not what God has set before us. But He's dwelling within. Our Creator is empowering us from the inside out. And that's an amazing ministry, a fascinating and remarkable and wonderful reality for the Christian. So we are not of the letter, but we are of the Spirit. And I just want to make a note for those who seek to keep the law as a means of Christian living, because there are many people out there these days who will seek to keep the law. There are groups out there like the Seventh-day Adventists who put themselves under the law of Moses, uh, which is not a good idea, and that, that religion has many other theological issues with it, not just that. But there are more Christian movements that have sought to bring back holidays, festivals, even dietary restrictions, and Saturday worship, and saying we must try to conform ourselves to the law. Well, for those who maybe in this room or whoever's listening that have some sort of inkling in that direction, I want to just put out a word of warning that once you start walking down that path, you have to realize, according to the New Testament, the law of Moses has no power to sanctify you. The commands written in stone do not have the power to sanctify. They don't. Paul says the law is weak. It's not able to make you holy in the flesh. And so there is certainly freedom in the Christian life. If you pick up on a thing or two in the law and you want to adapt that into your life, you're free to do that. But never think that the law has the power to make you more holy or even holy at all. And don't ever bind another Christian's conscience according to what you think is the appropriate use of law. We are not to be in the business of binding one another's consciences. And in these movements, you see that happening over and over again. Instead of a law being wisdom that we can apply in our day, a law becomes, once again, a law. And it is a sin if you don't do exactly as I do with the law of Moses. You have to be so careful about that. So we are not of the letter, Paul says in verse 6, but we are of the Spirit. What does it mean to be of the Spirit? Well, it means to be of the more glorious power of God that is seen in the new covenant. It is more glorious than that old covenant. It's to be a part of this greater ministry that God has enacted in this day. It's to be conformed to Christ in our behavior. To be of the Spirit is evidenced by Christ-like love, that we would have the love of Jesus for God and for neighbor, and that we would really take up this privilege to be conformed to Him. Isn't it so much better to be conformed to Jesus than it is to try to conform to law? Don't you think that's better? I certainly do. That we don't have the cold, hard commands in rock, but that we have a living person who is in us, who is with us, who is in Him. We live and move and have our being. He empowers us. Oh, I just think it's so amazing. 
that God would do such a work in this new covenant. As Matthew Ferris explains in his book, I've mentioned his book a few times. Um, His book is titled, If One Uses It Lawfully. It's a really, really good book about the law. Matthew Ferris, I would recommend you get that for a more in-depth study. But he writes in this book, One could collect all the apostolic instructions and summarily refer to them as the law of Christ. But it would not alter the intention of Paul to present believers not with a code, but preeminently with a person. Renewing the mind, learning Christ, walking in love and in the Spirit, indeed putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, these are for Paul not less than the Ten Commandments. Rather, these things do what the law could not do. They transform believers into Christ-likeness. That's what it means to be people of the Spirit that we're being transformed by His power into the image of Christ. And the Holy Spirit leads us in this conformity through the Word of God. He inspired the Word of God. He's given us the Word of God. He directs us in our thinking through the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2 goes into great detail on that. And He brings about fruit that reflects the love of God. And He gives us spiritual gifts according to His will. Do you realize that the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are strictly a new covenant ministry. If you were born before Christ, you weren't a part of the church and you didn't have that ministry from the Holy Spirit. But in the new covenant, we now have the Holy Spirit coming to bring about fruit and He has given us gifts that we can use in the church. And we should be encouraged now to pursue the Holy Spirit in these areas. Your service to God is to pursue the fruit given by the Spirit and the gifts that He's equipped you with. Another loose end I want to seek to tie up here is uh, addressing the term antinomian. I am quite curious, so just by show of hands, I won't ask you to define it, but how many of you have heard that phrase, antinomian? Reading the room, 10 to 15%. Okay, or maybe 20. Antinomian, the word means against law. And sometimes people will, will charge other people, Christians will charge other Christians with this idea of being antinomian. And what they mean by that is, well, you believe that if Christians aren't under law, then they can go out and do whatever they want. Perhaps some of you have been in conversations with some of your neighbors where they've said, hey, if you're not under law, you just think Christians can just sin and then go to heaven? Well, how do you answer that? How do you explain that? Well, um, First thing we say is, no, we don't believe that you can just, you know, go out and sin without regard for God or holiness or anything else, and hey, it's a party until you, di- until you die, God doesn't care what you do. That, that's just not a Christian worldview. We don't get that in the Bible anywhere. Uh, and in fact, I don't even know of anybody who teaches that, all right? So uh, maybe you could say, can you show me where someone has said that? Because I'd like to examine it, but uh, I just don't hear anybody teaching it. But we can go from there and say that the new covenant ministry is not a ministry of license, that you are now free to go out and live however you want, but it's a ministry of true holiness. Look down at verse 9 with me in our passage today, 2 Corinthians 3, 9, look at how Paul describes these ministries. For if the ministry of condemnation, that's the law in the old covenant, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Paul describes the ministry of the Spirit in a new covenant where we are not under the law as a ministry of holiness, righteousness. It's a ministry of true holiness because in the new covenant, we actually have the enablement to be holy. In the old covenant, you had a law, you had a standard, but you did not have the power. In a new covenant that God has made, now Christians have the Holy Spirit and are enabled to live for God. And there's a big problem with this word antinomian where people are basically saying, um, if you're antinomian, you believe anybody can do whatever they want. And the solution in that term is, well, they must need law. You must be nomian, not antinomian, you must be nomian. Put them under a law so that way they can be holy. But that's never the solution in the New Testament. The solution to sin is never the law. The solution to sin is is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel. It's God in you, working through you. That is the solution 
for sin. In fact, in Romans 5 verse 20, Paul says that the law came that sin would increase. So the solution to sin isn't bringing in the law. The law came that sin would abound. The solution is God's power in a new covenant. The Holy Spirit doesn't conform us to the law. The Holy Spirit conforms us to a person. The New Testament language is not that we are equipped to keep the law, but we are equipped to bear fruit to God. So we are not under law, but we are obligated now to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this language. As those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though I myself not being without the law, but under the law of Christ is what he says. And the construction there, and it's a unique term, it's the only place in the New Testament that the term is used. You could say that Paul was saying, I've been in lawed to Christ. I've now been given a legitimate obligation to my Savior, Jesus. We are not under the law, but we are obligated to the Lordship of Christ because the heart of God is more fully revealed in Him than in the law of Moses. So I want to finish with reading three passages to you with very brief commentary that sum up the advantage of the new covenant and the glorious reality of your new covenant life in Christ. This unity with Christ by faith that results in the glorious ministry of the Spirit, God's power in us, God's power through us. The first is Acts 13. Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, you have Paul preaching to a bunch of Jews in a synagogue. He's beginning his missionary efforts as a minister of the new covenant, and he goes to the synagogue, and he's invited to speak. I love this passage. This has always been one of my favorites. As a new Christian, I just thought this was awesome, because he goes to the synagogue, and after they you know, read from the law, they said, hey, anybody here have a word of encouragement? Just speak. Something we're way too afraid to do here. And uh, it says that Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, opened his mouth and began to speak. And he gets to this in verses 38 and 39 of Acts 13. It says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. We have, as Christians, full acceptance with God apart from the law. And we are freed from all things, including obligation to commands in stone, because we're now in laud to Christ. We are now obligated to the Lordship of Jesus. We've been freed from all things that we could not be freed from through the law of Moses. A second passage is 1 Corinthians 15, the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, here in this chapter, of course, has been describing the resurrection of Christ, how He has truly been raised from the dead bodily, how that impacts our future resurrection. We, too, will be raised with Christ in newness of life physically. His resurrection is our hope. And then he says this at the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of sin is the law. What an interesting phrase. Yours might say the strength of sin is the law. Well, through Christ, we are free from that power. The power of sin is not power to you. You have been set free from sin and death and guilt and from the chains that held you in sin by Jesus. You have died with Christ and you've died to the law and the curse of the law is removed that you'd be free to live for God by the Spirit. He died to take the curse and we died with Him. That's good news. For Christian living, you now live by grace. And finally, Romans 6 verses 12 to 14 an amazing passage. This is Paul once again. All three of these passages are the Apostle Paul. He writes to the Romans saying, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For Sin shall not be master over you, 
For you are not under law, but under grace. If you are under law, sin is your master. That's what Paul's saying here. But sin shall no longer be your master. That the power of sin, the law, you're not under it. You're under grace. And you are dead and alive in Christ. You've been crucified with Him and you've been raised to newness of life in Him. And the law can no longer kill you. The law is no longer hanging over your head. But now grace is on your head. The anointing of God's grace is on you. And this is how you live your life now, by the light of God's grace, not by the law. The Holy Spirit leads you into this life as He conforms you to Jesus. That is how you are to live as a Christian. This is God's plan for Christian living. We so want law, don't we? We want that list. Tell me what to do and I'll get it done. You can't. And God says, that's not how I set this up. He set this up that we would be people who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, who keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that by doing this, by looking at the Word of God, being led by the Spirit, He does the work from the inside, conforming us to holiness. That's God's plan for Christian living, okay? Well, thanks for sticking with me through all three parts of this. Uh, I want to keep preaching, but I'm going to pray now and uh, bring that little mini-series within a series to a close. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your ways are higher than our ways, that your design is better than any of our designs, and that you've given us grace. We recognize that you gave the law to Israel and that your law is holy and just and good. And yet, God, we know that we could never keep up with that law. We could never fulfill or meet that standard. And so we thank you for our Savior, Jesus, who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, who took the curse, the only one undeserving of the curse. He took it for us, that now we might be conformed to his love and walk in newness of life under the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this new covenant. God, help us each day to be led by your Spirit as we pursue you, seeking the fruit that he brings about and exercising the gifts that he's given, that you would be magnified through us, not ourselves, but that you would be lifted up and that we would be a testimony to the world around us as you build your church. God, we love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on the rest of this day, the week ahead, and yes, even the rest of our lives as we seek after you by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.